This morning we are going to look together at Psalm 78. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew in front of you. It's on page 488. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one, take that one home with you this morning. We'd love to have you have a Bible handy with you at all times. As you're turning to Psalm 78, I want you to think about your favorite story. If you're like me, if you're like my kids, you love a good story. My kids love a good bedtime story. And we're regularly absorbed in our house at night with stories of Jack and Annie's treehouse, the trouble Harry and Ron are getting themselves into, the fangs of Dang and Janner and Tink and Lily, tales of Misty Mountains Cold, Dungeons Deep and Caverns Old. Maybe you recognize those. Maybe some of those are your own favorite stories. My kids love nonsensical stories. They love the ridiculous voices that I make up to go along with our stories. They love stories from my childhood. For some reason, my boys love stories of when I get hurt. I don't understand that one. I love to read. My wife loves to read. We love instilling this love for story in our kids. You know, one of my own favorite stories uh, by a favorite author. It's Hannah Coulter by the author Wendell Berry, good Kentuckian. And he's got this collection of short stories from his imagined place of Port William, Kentucky, and if you've never read them, they're just a wonderful and beautiful contrast to a, a current life of busyness and technology, isolation, transience. Check them out sometime. But in this particular story in Hannah Coulter, there's one point in which Hannah is reflecting with her husband on the sad nature of her children growing up and leaving the people and the place of Port William. And she she laments this to her husband. She says, Here is my worry. When they were little, the children were always wanting stories. We read them stories. We told them stories. The stories they wanted most to be told were the stories of Nathan, their dad, his childhood at Port William, mine at Shagbark. But did we tell the stories right? That's the question she asked. Did we tell the stories right? She's worried. She maybe told them wrong, that they missed something. They didn't learn what they were supposed to learn from the story, and that's why they're leaving now. Our text this morning, Psalm 78, is likewise a story. And Asaph, the the author of this particular psalm, this story, song, he wants us to learn it that we might sing it to the next generation. He's going to draw a connection between our memory of the past and our hope for the future. We remember so that we might hope. But to get that connection right, it requires that we tell the story right. So let's begin by reading this psalm together and then we'll consider how we might tell the story right. This is Psalm 78. A mascal of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children and the next generation that they might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he had performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He 
split the rocks in the wilderness. You gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. You made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power, he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. And they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. When he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan, he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of the labor to their locust. He destroyed their vines with hail, their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath indignation, distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger, but did not spare them from death. He gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strengths in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which he had, which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned for them a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword, invented his wrath on his heritage, Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, their widows made no lamentation. And then the Lord awoke us from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame, 
rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. That's quite a story. I think it's helpful to read it there all together, even though it's longer, to read it all at once and to hear that full story. So how do we tell this story right? How do we tell it in such a way that it rightly orients our future hope? Three things I think we need to remember as we tell this story. We remember the story's purpose. We remember the story's pattern. Most importantly, we remember its promise. Its purpose, its pattern, and its promise. In every story, it does have a purpose, whether it's something simple like just enjoyment of a good story from a great book or something deeper like a lesson hidden within the narrative. Every story has a purpose. An Asaph story likewise has a purpose for us. But before we get into that, he tells us we need to listen and to listen very closely. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. It's gathering us in. Gather in, children. Listen to this story. If you're going to understand, listen. Listen closely. It draws us in even more. It says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things we've heard and known that our fathers have told us. And so they've both heard and known these things, and they're a parable, and they're dark sayings of old. He's saying there's something more than just facts to gather here. There's truths to understand if we just listen diligently, if we listen very closely. There's something more for us in this story. In our story, he says it's nothing less than the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. Things of the past. Asaph is turning our ears to the past that we might turn and speak it to the next generation so that they might tell the next generation. That they might tell the next generation. It's this never-ending chain of storytellers led by dads. He's reminding us of Deuteronomy 6, that call of God to parents, to moms and dads, to teach diligently to your children the words of the Lord. But again, I love that it's led by dads. Perfect for us today. His dads, God has made you, God's made us the chief storyteller in our home. This is the normal pattern of discipleship throughout the Bible. Fathers telling their children about the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. And they in turn tell their children. And so just as we walk through this text this morning, consider, dads, the story you're telling in your home. Are you telling this kind of story? There's a, it's just a wonderful, precious gift to us as dads. In our triumphs, in our failures, in our joys, in our sorrows, in our sin, in our shame, we get to be the chief storytellers, telling the wonders of our God. There's grace for us, because I know you're like me. We don't do that well all the time. Keep listening. There's grace. There's hope for us in this passage, dads, if we listen and listen closely. Lest we think this is a sermon and a text just for dads. Notice what Asaph said in verse 4. He says, we will not hide them from their children. We will not hide them from their children. So there's a, a responsibility here even beyond our direct, immediate descendants. He's saying we have a a corporate storytelling responsibility to one another. All of us are responsible for telling this story to all of us. You thought about church membership that way as a storytelling responsibility? 
Why do we tell these stories? What's, what's the purpose? Let's keep reading. Verse 7. So that they should set their hope in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So that they should set their hope in God. The purpose of this story is to set your hope in God. Is there a greater purpose to any story than that? I love, as I mentioned, loved reading. I love reading history. I loved history classes, but also hated many of the history classes I took. And I apologize if you're a history teacher or professor, but the purpose of, I think, every history class I ever took was to memorize a bunch of dates and names and places and facts. Those things are important. You can't learn history. You can't understand history apart from the facts. They don't really do a whole lot to help us see what's going on. They don't lift our eyes above the facts. And so Asaph, he's giving us this story. God is giving us this story in his psalm, not to teach us a bunch of facts about Israel's history, but so that way we might lift our eyes to him, that we might hope in him. Talked about VBS this next week. If you're teaching in VBS this next week, you're not just teaching facts, you're teaching hope. Reading Bible stories at home with your kids, you're not just teaching the stories of God's wonders, you're teaching hope. Leading a small group in, in Link, leading a shepherding group, you're teaching hope. It's because our knowing about God is designed by God for us to hope in God. Knowing about God is meant to lead to hope in God. So he says, tell the story right that we might hope in God. And he, he contrasts this with forgetting the works of God and failing to keep his commands. He says, don't be like your father's a stubborn and rebellious generation who is not steadfast and not faithful to God. So forgetting the works of the Lord leads to rebellion against the Lord. Knowing the works of the Lord leads to setting your hope in God. Knowing leads to hoping. And so forgetful people are hopeless people. People who are hopeless have forgotten something. What is it they've forgotten? Well, Asaph is going to give us an extended historical survey of what forgetfulness looks like. It says the Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Ephraim was one of the two sons born to Joseph while they were in Egypt. And when Joseph dies... Jacob chooses these two sons. He adopts them. He gives them the blessing that Joseph would have had. And so Ephraim is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, it's a prominent tribe, the most prominent in the northern kingdom. Uh, as the tribes would separate over time, this becomes, Ephraim becomes a prominent leader of the northern kingdom. And Ephraim's called out here because of their representative nature of being a stubborn and rebellious people. They failed to trust that God was with them. And so they turned back on the day of battle. We don't know exactly what battle this was, what event, what moment it was that they turned back. We just know it's symptomatic of a bigger problem, that they didn't keep God's covenant, that they refused to obey God's law, and they had forgotten God's works, God's wonders. Specifically, he says they'd forgotten God's saving work among them in the Exodus, at the crossing of the Red Sea, and in the wilderness wandering. And so he talks about Egypt. He recalls the story of Egypt, the field of Zoan. These call our attention back to, to Moses and the miracles that he did before Pharaoh. Calls us back to the plagues. Just to remind you briefly, Exodus 3, God's speaking to Moses and says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I'll stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And so Asaph, he's recalling the Lord rescuing his people then by parting the Red Sea, by destroying Pharaoh's army, 
In the wilderness, he talks about leading them by a cloud, God's presence, leading them by a cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, Moses striking that rock, water flowing out of it. They'd forgotten all of it. I love how one author, one commentator describes this. He says, when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, their liberation, impossible. When they were trapped at the Red Sea, Escape was impossible. Without food and water in the wilderness, survival was impossible. God repeatedly did the impossible, and Israel repeatedly forgot. All of this, it should have been enough, right? This should have been enough for Israel to trust God and keep his commands, but it wasn't. They forgot the saving grace of God, and they lost their hope. In him. And it's especially evidenced by the way Asaph continues to describe these, this unbelieving generation. Look at, at verse 17. Yet they sin still more against him, rebelling against the most high God in the desert. Verse 18, it goes on, they tested God, demanded of God. Verse 19, they spoke against God, doubting his power. Verse 20, they complain about God's provision. And here he's, he's calling us back to, to Numbers 11. Maybe just make a note of Numbers 11. You can go read this later. I'm, I'm going to read just a couple verses from it. But, but go check out some of these stories that Asaph is, is connecting for us. In Numbers 11, says, The people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is driven up. It's dried up. There's nothing at all but this manna to look at. The food was better in Egypt. Sure, we were slaves. Sure, we were mistreated. But but man, the fish was good. Delicious. We should go back there. Can I just say as a dad, I love that they say there's nothing but manna to look at. Not manna to eat, but to look at. Can't you just kind of picture them like crying and like pushing it across their plate and refusing to eat it? I'm sure none of your families can relate to that picture. Asaph, he says that when the Lord hears this rebellion, their demands, their doubts, their complaints, how does God respond? He's full of wrath. A fire is kindled against his people. His anger rises against them because they didn't trust the saving power and believe in him. Story's not done yet, though. Look at verse 23. What's that first word? Yet. The grace wrapped up in that little word right there. Yet, our sin, their sin, our sin is great. Yet, there's grace greater still. So how does God respond? He commands the skies to open up and he rains down manna, the bread of the angels. I mean, it's just such grace that he would respond with provision to these complaining people. I'm sure people that we can't relate to at all. But he also noticed he gives them exactly what they wanted. He rains down meat on them like dust. And again, back to Numbers 11. It says, Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on that side, around the camp, and about two cubits, about 18 inches, above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered quail. And while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord kindled against the people and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. And therefore the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, which means grave of craving. 
There's meat everywhere. He rains down meat as far as you can see that way, as far as you can see that way, all around the camp and 18 inches high. Meat everywhere. You want some meat? Here's some meat. The Lord hears their, their demands, their cravings. And he's full of wrath. God gives them exactly what they demanded. This image of raining down manna and meat, it's an echo of God raining down judgment on the earth in the flood. He says the quail is numerous as the sand of the sea. Remember what, what was God's promise to Abraham? How many descendants would he have? As numerous as the sands of the sea. So Asaph, he's beautifully, just masterfully connecting stories from all across Scripture, bringing them together to show us something. Verse 32, in spite of all this, in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. God's grace to them is shortness of life. Sin brings judgment from the Holy One of Israel. Israel had forgotten the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he had done, and consequently they had no hope. And in mercy, God makes their days vanish like a vapor. Asaph, he wants us to remember the saving grace of God. He wants us to remember the judgment of the Lord against sin. He says there's, there's mercy here, though. Keep listening. Verse 34, what happens next? It says, when he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. In verse 17, they rebel against the most high. Now here in 34, they remember that he is the most high God. And they remember, just like we sang a little bit ago, that God is their rock God is their redeemer. That song, and, and here in this song, he's calling us back to Moses. Deuteronomy 32, this is a, a song that Moses sings at the commissioning of Joshua because Joshua is going to lead the people into the promised land. Listen, just a, a couple of verses out of Moses' song. See if this rings any bells for our psalm. He says, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. Again, Asaph, he's a, he's a wonderful poet, but he's an even better historian. He's, he's collecting all these wonderful big moments from Israel's history, from the stories of Scripture, and he's calling them to remember the stories, to remember the Lord that we might hope in him. So God's judgment, it, it causes them to repent and remember just how sad it is that God's redemption of Israel wasn't enough to cause them to repent. It took judgment of death to do it. But if we keep seeing, we, they were double-minded people. It was all flattery. This wasn't remembrance that leads to hope. This wasn't remembrance that leads to worship. Verse 36, it says, They flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. You see, they, they knew in part, but their heart didn't fully belong to the Lord. Their remembrance was more out of a fear of judgment than it was a reverent awe for the Most High God. There's that word again. Yet. Yet God, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh. 
I think, because of the way Asaph, so Asaph's written many of these psalms, not just Psalm 78, but several before it, several after it. If you read through the psalms, you'll see they're in five books. This is book three. This is the center of book three. You remember, we've been in Leviticus, the center of the Pentateuch. Talk about atonement here. And I think Asaph is, is calling our minds back to Leviticus, to that gracious provision from God, that system of priests and sacrifices, the tabernacle, to atone for our sins. And you remember, what was our, our question that we've been wrestling with in Leviticus? How can a holy God dwell among a sinful people? And he gives us God's compassion. He gives us this sacrificial system. And it says that God, who is compassionate, does not stir up all his wrath and atones for the sins of his people. Asaph saying, remember Israel. God has made a way for you to dwell with him. Remember Israel. God is still with you. And what's amazing is Asaph uses the rest of this psalm to to press home his point and to show us a a pattern in these stories. See, the rest of the psalm, it's, it's really a second stanza which echoes the first. So let me, let me show you this a little bit. Remember verses 9 through 11, the Ephraimites turn back. They don't keep the covenant. They refuse to obey, forget the Lord. Look at verses 40 to 42. How often they rebel against him in the wilderness, grieve him in the desert. They tested God again and again, provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. So stanza one, the people rebel, they test, they forget. Stanza two, God's people rebel, provoke, and forget. The second pairing reminds us of what they forgot. They forgot God's saving act in the Exodus. Verses 12 and six, 12 through 16, you'll remember a recollection of the Exodus. The Red Sea, the wilderness. And now in verses 43 to 55, we have a recollection of the plagues, the Exodus, the Red Sea, Mount Sinai conquest of the land. They forget in the first pairing what they forgot, the exodus in the second pairing. In the second pairing, he brings them to the holy land, to Mount Sinai, where they receive the gift of the law, where they begin to learn the joy of being in covenant relationship with their Redeemer. God drives out the nations ahead of them, making a place for them, just as he had promised Abraham all those years before. Come to the third pairing. Third pairing, verses 17 to 20, and verses 56 to 58. In verse 56, yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God. They turned away, did not keep his testimonies, provoked God to anger, built up the high places, worshiped idols. Verse 17, they sinned against the Most High God, testing, sinning all the more. It's a pretty stubborn, rebellious generation, just like Asaph said. And you get the fourth pairing, verses 59 to 64, verses 21 to 33. In both cases, you'll see that God hears the rebellion of his people and is full of wrath. And here, Asaph starts to do something really interesting to kind of set us up for what he's going to do in the final pairing. He takes us to 1 Samuel 4, which is when the Philistines captured the ark from the Israelites. So if you're not familiar with that story, or if you recall it a little bit, Israel had gone out to battle against one of their most well-known enemies, the Philistines, and Israel's defeated. So they decide to go over to Shiloh, up in the northern kingdom, happens to be in Ephraim, grab the ark, bring it down with them, try this whole battle thing again. See if they can go get their rabbit's foot and see if it works better this time. But the Philistines, they overcome their fear, of this ark-wielding Israelite army, and Israel, Israel's defeated again. The ark of God is captured, and the sons of the priest are killed. So the Israelites, thinking this lucky thing would bring them victory, happens to provoke God, provoke God to anger. He forsakes his dwelling among his people, delivers the ark into the hands of Israel's enemy. God's presence gone from his people. Could it get any worse? 
just think for a second about all the ways the people are described so far in our psalm. They turned back. They did not keep his covenant. They forgot his works. They're stubborn. They're rebellious. They're not steadfast, not faithful. They're sinners. They tested God, demanded of God, doubted of God, didn't believe God, didn't trust him. They complained. They were flatterers. They were liars. They grieved God's heart. They tested. They provoked. They didn't remember. They were treacherous. They were idolatrous. I probably missed a couple in there too. These are the people God is saving. Again, good thing none of us could be described in any of these ways. Asaph is so all-encompassing of his negative description of these people. How could there be hope for these people? How could there be hope for us? Again, he's setting us up for this final pairing. Verses 34 to 39, compassion, atonement. You remember Leviticus? Verses 65 to 72, reminders of God's saving grace. Look at verse 65. Then the Lord awoke us from sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. God's wrath was so swift and so strong and so violent that the best Asaph has in the language is to describe this like the drunken judgment of a warrior awakening from rest. So God in his grace, he destroys Israel's enemy. Asaph has deliberately laid out this story in its sequence and its pairings to to show us a pattern. God's people rebel when they forget God's glorious salvation. That's the first and second pairing. God hears the rebellion in the third, which brings his righteous judgment. Hope remains because compassion, atonement, salvation still come. That's the, the, the order of the story. So how could we summarize this pattern? I'm going to try it like this. God's people, in their failure to remember the Lord, are relentlessly faithless. God, in his gracious memory of his people, is relentlessly faithful. Let's say that again. God's people in their failure to remember the Lord, are relentlessly faithless. God, in his gracious memory of his people, is relentlessly faithful. So if we're going to tell this story right, if we're going to tell this story in a way that leads to hope in God, We must remember this pattern. We must remember that we are a forgetful and faithless people, yet God remembers and he is faithful. But Asaph, he's done something really unique with this last pairing where he shows us our ultimate reason for hope. As we look closely at this final pairing, we're going to discover the story's promise, something that we must remember if we're going to get this story right. So look again with me at verse, verse 38. Our word again. Yet, yet God, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. Again, Asaph, he's, he's calling our attention back to the book of Leviticus, reminding us of God dwelling among his sinful people through the priest, through the sacrifice, through the tabernacle. Remember Israel, remember God's presence with you. Verse 65, the Lord awakes from his sleep, routs his enemies. This is a callback to the rest of that story in 1 Samuel. Philistines, they capture the ark, bring it into the temple of Dagon. It's a wonderful story, you should read it. Whenever the ark gets near Dagon's statue, the statue falls over on its face in front of the ark. This false god falls over and worships the true god. The people, they're inflicted with tumors and killed, and so the Philistines, they, they put the ark back on a cart, something we weren't supposed to do, and they just, they set it on cattle and say, go back, go back. So we got God's presence with Israel in Leviticus, God's presence returning with Israel in the ark. Asaph's reminding us not, not all hope is lost, there's hope still. 
Remember, remember Israel, God's with you. Keep looking, verse 67. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. And he chose David, his servant. And he took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes he brought to shepherd Jacob, his people. Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. So what's happening here? God, God rejects Joseph and his son, Ephraim. Remember Ephraim? Place of power, place of prestige. God rejects them, and he chooses the tribe of Judah, chooses Mount Zion, a place within the allotment given to Judah, and he does it purely out of his love. Free, unmerited, sovereign election of a people and a place. Judah was a nobody. But in the middle of it, we have Mount Zion. So here, again, Asaph, he's grabbing these stories, weaving them together to show us something. He's calling our attention to 2 Samuel, chapter 5, when David captures Zion from the Jebusites, builds this great city, a city which he calls City of David. And it's on Mount Zion in the city of David where Solomon, David's son, is going to build the temple. Here, what he's calling the sanctuary, which he compares to the high heavens. And Asaph is reminding us of the way that the temple is symbolic. It's a symbolic representation of the whole cosmos. The whole universe is God's temple. But here in the temple on Judah, Mount Zion, God's presence is going to dwell in a, a special way. Again, we have God's presence in Leviticus, presence in the ark, presence in the sanctuary on Mount Zion. Remember this. Remember this, Israel. And he, he, he draws the line connecting all those together with David. He says he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 7. This one I want you to turn and see. 2 Samuel 7. We're going to look for a moment at the covenant that God made with David. Second Samuel 7, starting in verse 8. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall, shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So Asaph, he's, he's calling our attention to the promise of God made to David that God would dwell among his people in a house built by David's offspring, that the people would have rest from all their enemies, and that this kingdom would last forever as God establishes David's throne. There's hope, Israel. Asaph is anchoring the hope of the people in the promises given to David. Look back at the promises to David, Israel. Remember the covenant God made with David. We know that Asaph's also reminding us that this is a messianic promise. The people 
were longing for the promised son of David who would come and shepherd them with an faithful and an upright heart. This promise, it, it shines over the whole rest of the Old Testament. Seems like Solomon, David's son, is going to be this true son, the one to fulfill the promise. He builds the temple, this grand dwelling place for God, but he's yet another forgetful, faithless, rebellious leader. Somebody greater than Solomon is needed. This leads Jeremiah to prophesy centuries later in in Jeremiah 23. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the king we need, the righteous son of David. And so Asaph is connecting the story of Israel's past with the promise to David, which points forward to the coming Messiah. Hope in God, Israel. God one day is going to send the true son of David to shepherd us. He will be upright. He will be blameless. He will have integrity. He will be our righteousness, and his kingdom will have no end. Recall the words of the angel to Mary just before Jesus was born. She says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke 2, what what do the angels tell the shepherds out in the field? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David. City of David. Savior, who is Christ the Lord, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the true son of David has come. God is faithful. He has not forgotten his promise. So we, we show, we tell this story right when we remember that all of these promises have found their yes, but found their amen in Jesus. The promise of the story that God would dwell with his people has found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so we have even greater reason to hope than Israel had. They were looking toward an unfulfilled promise of God, and we get to look at the promise of God fulfilled. The city of David, Mount Zion, the place of God's presence, Jesus has been born there. Jesus, the true son of David, himself, God himself has come and dwelt among us, and of his kingdom there is no end. Remember God's presence. Our great shepherd king has come. The whole point of this psalm, the whole point of Psalm 78 is to help us remember so that we might have hope. But our remembrance isn't of our failures. Our remembrance isn't of our father's failures. The point of the psalm is not do better, try harder. Try not to forget like they did. The point is that you are forgetful But Christ, our hope, he has come and he will never forget you. And so we hope. In every situation, at every moment, there's no sin too great that you could be without hope. There's no person, there's no dad, there's no spouse, there's no kid, no child that we should ever give up on. Look at the patience of God with these people. There's no relationship too broken. There's no anxiety too great. There's no addiction too strong. No marriage unreconcilable. No trauma too great. No grief too heavy. No burden too crushing. No one of us too stubborn or too rebellious. There is always hope, and his name is Jesus. So tell the story right. Tell the story right that the coming generation might set their hope in Christ. Will you pray with me?
Christ, you are our only hope in life and death. We read this long list of all the sins, all the failures, the doubt, the unbelief, the demands, the rebellion. We're no better. We're no different. We praise you this morning. We gather this morning because you are a God of compassion who has atoned for our sins in Jesus Christ and so we have hope. There is yet hope for us still. God, would you make us a people of hope? Would we be known for this? Because our hope is not anchored in us. It's not anchored and rooted in us being better or different. Our hope is in you. Our perfect heavenly Father who sent his Son, Jesus, to redeem us stubborn, rebellious people. And so may we be a place that always tells the story right. God, let us never gather as a church apart from telling the story of Jesus, our only hope. May he be the one proclaimed. He be the one who is known. May the glories and the hope of the gospel be forevermore proclaimed by and among us, we pray, Lord. Amen.